right. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. If you have uh, your Bible, please open it up to Galatians chapter 2. We have turned the corner. Galatians 2 is where we're going to start this morning. And uh, while you turn there, if you're a guest, I just want to say welcome. Um, I would love to meet you before you leave and uh, get to put a face with a name and get to hear a little bit of your story. And uh, I would love to just get to know you even better and take you to lunch or coffee or something and figure out how our church might be able to serve you. Um, But welcome. Thanks for joining us. If you're a guest and to our church family, uh, man, it's always good to see you, hear you sing. Um, look at your faces in the midst of good seasons and bad seasons and trials and joys and mountaintops and valleys. Um, God's grace is sufficient and his word is sufficient and it's always good to gather uh, with family and we don't have to put on and act like everything's together and um, um, we just get to be free in the gospel, which is exactly what we're talking about this morning. So uh, it's always good to be with you. Um, It sounds really weird Um, But if there's one thing that gets me emotional during the week, it's when I think about you and the relationships um, that are being built in this church and how God's weaving people's hearts together and all of those things. So I am really, really grateful for you. And uh, I'm excited to jump in the Word today. Um, Before we jump in, one short and sweet thing to make mention for you. Um, If you're traveling next weekend for spring break and all of those things, enjoy it. Um, Hope the weather is nice wherever you're headed and uh, all of those things. But if you're here, um, I would encourage you. We're going to keep rolling right along through Galatians. And uh, I am going to be sitting next Sunday. And Chris Rivera is going to be preaching to us next Sunday. So I would encourage you to, if you're in town, it's not as good on the podcast. So be here in person. We would love for you to join us, and I'm excited to sit under it, and we're going to keep rolling right along through Galatians, but if you miss, you can always watch online at our East Memphis location, or you can catch the podcast during the week. So um, High Point, not High Point, Mission Church Carrierville, wherever you find your podcast, somebody's going to do it. It's going to be me. Um, So... You can download those and uh, follow along with us. But I would encourage you, just a personal pastoral kind of encouragement. Um, Our prayer is that by the end of this book, um, you have a good handle on the book of Galatians, where you know what Paul is saying and what he's arguing and why he's saying things uh, certain ways, um, why he gets angry at certain points and why he um, is gracious at other times. And you have a good feel for this letter um, so that you can walk through it on your own one day, so you can walk your children through it one day, uh, whatever the Lord um, leads you. But our hope is that you um, get to uh, get a good handle on this letter. So I would encourage you to, to join in and follow along with us. Uh, let me read where we are. Um, we're going to start in Galatians 2 and read the first 10 verses, and then I'll pray for us, and uh, we'll walk through them together. So if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word, if you are able... <clears throat> And I'll read this to us, and I promise we're going to get back to younger folks reading. Um, we have struggled as adults in our teaching team meeting reading some of these passages, and I know how nerve-wracking it is already just to be up here and read, um, so I was not going to put that on um, a teenager or you as an adult or one of your children. So uh, I'm going to read this morning, and then uh, we'll pray and, and jump in. But this is Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, 
the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. This is just one big run-on sentence. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we confess and we, um, God, we start this morning um, during this preaching time and we sang about it in our songs. God, our great need for you. God, you are the only thing we need. You are all that we need. And uh, Father, I'm just grateful um, that in your sovereign plan, um, you decided to give us access to the gospel. Um, God, it is no small feat that we can gather here this morning and hear the word preached. God, we lift up those places, God, who do not have access to your word, to the scriptures. God, as we talk about this morning, all that Paul has done and labored so that the the, the integrity of the gospel would be preserved for the Galatians and God, thereby us. Father, our only response is gratitude. We do not deserve this good news. But God, in your grace, you revealed it to us. And Father, I pray for those places, those tribes, those people groups that have not heard this good news about your son. God, that you would move swiftly, that you would use us to do it. You would use our money and our finances and our funds but God, that you promise us in your word that the great commission will be completed, that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. So Father, until then, help us to guard this message. God, like lives depend on it because they do. And it's to the glory of your name that we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, two years ago, um, I was a young adult pastor then, had a very short stint of about a year uh, with our young adults, and uh, it was a blast. It was probably one of my favorite years ever in ministry, and uh, we went to a missions conference um, called Cross Conference. It was an awesome conference, and um, when you think about um, Inside Out, uh, the, the Pixar movie, um, I feel like this experience was one of those core memories for me um, because I heard these missionaries um, on stage talking and it was this couple and they essentially said, we had our plans to go to good schools and get good jobs and make good money and drive good cars and do all the things. And then we were at our local church and they preached the gospel and preached about mission, missions and we were never the same. And in that moment, they said with the conviction of the Holy Spirit and with the confirmation of their local church and its pastors and elders, they decided to forego ever achieving the American dream in giving their lives to missions. 
and they decided to partner with an organization. They ended up in uh, Papua New Guinea. Um, I don't even know exactly where that is, except for if you find Australia and just start heading up, you eventually get in the general area. And essentially they go to Papua New Guinea and then they get to pick from about seven different people groups that have never heard the gospel before. And you're gonna go, you're gonna learn the national language, um, but all of these tribes have their own dialects and their own languages and you're gonna go and you're gonna show up and you're gonna teach the gospel to these people. So they're headed out and Turns out, you know, all of these smaller tribes and these airstrips, um, the, the tribe that they had prayed over and labored over and, you know, had lots of anxious thoughts about, they picked it. And as they're about to take off, the pilot looks at them and says, hey, their airstrip was flooded last night, so you have to pick another people group that you're gonna dedicate, you know, the next X amount of years of your life to. So they quickly pick a second one and they scribble a note on a piece of paper and put it in an empty water bottle. And they fly to this remote tribe, uh, the Yimbi Yimbi people, and they throw the water bottle out of the plane and it lands in the tribe that was known to be hostile, known for their resistance to um, strangers and all of those things. So they throw the bottle, written in the national language, hoping these people can read it. And then they eventually decide, okay, we're just gonna land and see what happens. We saw, we kept flying in circles. We saw them pick up the bottle. They read the note. Hopefully they understood it. They land. Um, some weird local things happen. Um, and they essentially are welcomed into the tribe. And for the next seven to nine years, this husband and wife dedicates eight or nine years of their life to sharing the gospel with this tribe, which entails so much more than just you start talking. Because they come to find out that this people group has a spoken language, but they have no written alphabet. So before you can even share the gospel with them and translate the English words into their words, this couple had to meet with all of these people and create an alphabet from nothing. To, to learn their language, create an alphabet, to labor multiple years just to start having the alphabet that we can put the, the scriptures together. So they finally create an alphabet and then they start translating the scriptures. And while they're translating, they start serving these people and loving these people. And eventually they start having these gatherings where they start sharing the gospel and they start working their way through Genesis one, like we're doing in our equip classes. And they get to Genesis three. They've talked about who God is, that he's creator, that he's created them in his image, things that they'd never heard before. And then they get to the fall of man and they read all about sin they read all about the fall, but then they read in Genesis 3.15, there's a promise of a redeemer, that a redeemer is coming. And as they tell this story, they turn to Genesis 4, and they read that Adam and Eve had sons. And the people stop, whoa, 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 is this the guy? Is this the promised one? Is this the man? No, 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 this is not the man. And they keep walking through the Old Testament. They get to Abraham, they say, hey, is this the man? Is this the one we're waiting for? Who's gonna kill the snake? They say, no, 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 this isn't the man. They get to Moses. Is this the one? Is this the man? No, this isn't him. They get to David. Is this the man? This isn't the man. And all the way through the Old Testament, Joshua, you name it, walking through the figures, they get to John the Baptist and they say, is this the man? And the missionaries respond with, you're really, really close, but no, this isn't the man. And they say, well, stop telling us about the man who dunks people in water and tell us about the man. And 
he says he will never forget the day where they talk about John the Baptist's proclamation, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the man, Jesus. This is the one who we've been waiting for. And he goes on and on about all the stories, but one of the things he showed us at this conference was um, the, um, essentially the commissioning ceremony where the Bible had been complete in their language. A tribe that had never heard the gospel before through this massive ceremony with all of these native tribe dances and performances and all these kind of things. And they walk in with the scriptures and they hand it to one of the local patriarchs in this tribe and he just holds it up. And he says, this is what we've been waiting for for all of our lives. The word of God, the good news about what God has done to save us. The good news about not how we can get up to him, but how Christ has come down to us. And it is a phenomenal video. In fact, if you want the link, I'll find the link where you can see a good clip of the, they did a documentary on it so you can see it now. Um, But it is phenomenal. And I tell you that story because essentially, this is a little bit of what Paul is doing in the book of Galatians, in this section of Galatians. And I know we're reading it and he's like, I went here and then I stayed here and I did this for three years and I did this for 14 and you're like, this is the most boring part of Galatians. And I agree with you. But it is so much more impactful than you realize because what Paul is doing is showing all that he has done and all that he has labored so that the Galatians will have the gospel in its full integrity so that they will have the gospel, the good news of the gospel preserved for you. Just like this missionary couple gave up their lives, Christians have been doing this since Jesus left the earth. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about all that he had endured. He'd been beaten, he'd been lashed five times, he had been stoned, he'd been shipwrecked, all of these things. And when I say stoned, I mean with rocks. So just making that clear. But he had experienced all sorts of things for the sake of the gospel. And what Paul is doing is he's faced all of that. He was um, beaten and stoned to take the gospel to the Galatians and survived it by God's grace so that they could get the gospel preserved for them. But what Paul is doing here is he is making the argument about here's how you can know after all that I've been through that you have the genuine, true gospel with integrity. It has been preserved for you. And what he has been doing is he opened the letter in chapter one, giving us the gospel that Jesus gave himself up for us and it was according to the will and the good pleasure of God to do so. None of our works are mentioned whatsoever. It is all by God's grace. It was Jesus who lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve. He paid the price. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the father. He gets the glory. And Jesus has done all of this. And then he quickly, Paul says, I'm astonished that you've turned to a different gospel. Paul preached the genuine gospel to the church at Galatia, to the churches. It's a region of churches. Preached the gospel to them. And very quickly, they had been preyed upon, which we'll read about their enemies here um, today. But they had been preyed upon by the Judaizers. And the Judaizers had one mission. And it was to prey on Gentile believers and tell them that you didn't just have to put your faith in Jesus, you had to put your faith in Jesus and you had to become Jewish. It wasn't just good enough that Jesus' all-sufficient merit is given to you. 
It is done, it is finished, no more debt I owe. They say, no, 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 no. It's almost done, it's almost finished, you just have to be circumcised and follow these rules and then it's finished. And Paul says, as soon as you add anything to it is done, it is finished, you don't have the gospel anymore. You don't have it. And he says, I'm astonished that you've turned to something different. Not that there is anything different, that as soon as you add something to the gospel, as soon as you add anything to faith, any kind of work, you no longer have the genuine gospel. You can't be saved by faith and works. The essence of faith is you're trusting in someone else's work. And the first chapter, Galatians 1, Paul defends essentially the message that he was given. And now in chapter two, he's going to defend the source of his message. And he started that towards the end of chapter one. And if you were following along last week, he talks about essentially how he was saved on the Damascus road. He didn't start gathering the apostles together. He didn't immediately go up to Jerusalem to collaborate with them. Instead, he spent three years alone. And then after those three years, he spent 15 days in Jerusalem and he met Peter and he got acquainted with Peter. He barely met James. And then he went to Syria and Cilicia, essentially back home. And while he was there, he says, the churches in Jerusalem started hearing about me that I was preaching the gospel which I once tried to destroy. And then he picks up in chapter two. So after he has spent some time, and we're about to figure out how long he spent at home in Syria and Cilicia. Cilicia is where Tarsus is, where Saul of Tarsus is from, which I can imagine you would immediately wanna go home and preach the gospel to your parents and your siblings and your neighbors and all of those things. But he goes home and this is where we pick up. Last week we saw the source of his gospel and this week we're gonna see the source of his apostleship and his calling and all of those things. The content of his message is gonna be confirmed. So he says this in verse one of chapter two. He says, then after 14 years, 14 years before he mentioned any of the apostles, right? I said, hey to James, I barely got to meet Peter. And then he says, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem. And this is just a side note to help you with your Bible reading. Everyone always goes up to Jerusalem because in the Bible, when they're talking about where they went, they, they're referring to elevation. And J Jerusalem is a high elevation. So regardless if you are west or east or south, you go up to Jerusalem, okay? Um, so just don't be confused by that. Everyone's going up to Jerusalem. Um, we don't talk like that because we drive cars and we don't feel the elevation. But I promise you, if we walked, we would say, yeah, I went up to Jerusalem. So Paul says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me because of a revelation. Now this doesn't sound like a big deal, but what Paul is trying to say here is that um, he did not, in 14 years, gather with the apostles, which is what the Judaizers were accusing him of, to kind of corroborate a story and come up with a message. And hey, tell me what I'm supposed to go and preach. And that way, if Paul did one of those deals, hey, tell me what to say, then his apostleship wouldn't be legitimate. He wouldn't have been sent and given the gospel by Jesus himself. The Judaizers were preying on not just Paul's message, that that message won't save you, but they were also preying on Paul's authority, his apostleship. Hey, he's, he's a phony. He's not a real apostle. He's making this up. So Paul goes out of his way to lay out his story. Spent three years here, went home, 
swung through there for 15 days, spent three years um, in Cilicia and Syria, and then 14 years at home. And then I decide to get Barnabas with me, who was a big name in the early church, and Titus. And why did he go up? Because of a revelation. Now that don't read too much into that. What Paul is trying to, to get the Galatian audience to hear is that, hey, they didn't summon me. This isn't me getting in trouble. This isn't me getting called to the principal's office. Jerusalem was where the original apostles were that Jesus commissioned before he died and after he rose. Paul was later in Acts chapter nine. So Paul wasn't seen like the Jerusalem apostles were as the OG apostles. They had the reputation, as we'll say twice in this passage. He wasn't seen to have that authority, but he's making sure that they say, hey, it was a revelation. It was the Holy Spirit that told me to go to Jerusalem. It wasn't the bosses calling me to go and get in trouble. It wasn't the principal calling me to the office, that it was God who told me to go up to them. Does that make sense? It's removing the idea that Paul takes orders from the apostles, meaning that he would be like a second class apostle. He's saying, I'm going up there on my own because the Holy Spirit told me to go. And here's what he did when he got there to the apostles. Look at verse two. It says, and set before them. And then there's a parenthetical there, though privately before those who seemed influential. Who is them? Those are the apostles. So Paul goes and sets something before them. And then he gives us parentheses and he says, hey, well, privately, I went to those who are influential. And he's gonna talk about the whole influential idea and those kind of things. But who he's referring to there is most theologians, uh, generally all commentators refer to um, Jesus' inner three, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. That Paul is essentially saying, hey, before I went and gave it to the 12, I went and met with these three privately and I set before them, what did he set before them? And before we answer that question, we need to answer, well, why in the world does Jesus go to the apostles? or not Jesus, why in the world does Paul go to the apostles? Why couldn't he just keep doing his own thing? Um, eventually, Paul had to meet the apostles, and why? Why would Paul need to go and sync up with the apostles? Because it was the apostles, specifically those 11 to 12, I get confused about Matthias because he was replaced after Jesus ascended, um, so I don't know if he was directly commissioned by Jesus because Jesus was in heaven by then. Um, 11, a lot of people say 12, regardless. Why did Paul need to go and talk with them? Because it was them that Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom. If you remember, way back in Matthew 16, when Jesus is hanging out with his disciples, he looks at them and say, hey, who do people say that I am? And they respond with some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, which is interesting because John the Baptist was alive. Um, some say Jeremiah, and then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, bless you. Um, you didn't come up with this. You know, flesh and blood didn't give you this. My father gave you this revelation. And then he says, on this rock, on this confession that Christ is the son of the living God, I'm gonna build my church. And then he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And what he's saying there, and this is where we begin to misinterpret a lot of verses, he's not saying that they're moving God's hand. He's saying that whatever the apostles affirm and 
bind or loosen will already have been bound or loosed in heaven according to God's sovereign eternal plan. That you're gonna confirm my moves here on earth. I'm giving you the keys. Not you're gonna be on earth and I'm gonna react to what you're doing. That's not what Jesus was preaching. But he gave the authority to the apostles. And what were they gonna do? They were laying the foundation of the church. They were being carried by the Holy Spirit to write scripture. They were gathering together in Acts 15 to decide matters about the gospel for the church. They were preaching the first sermons about Jesus. They were um, baptizing repentant believers. They were establishing churches and putting elders in place and deacons in place to guard and watch and protect the gospel and to serve the people through the deacons. They were literally laying the foundation of the church. They had the authority. They were performing miracles. They were writing scripture. They were given the keys. Paul actually affirms this in Ephesians chapter two. Um, He says this in verse 17. It says this, this will be on the screen. It says, and he came and preached to you who were far off and peace to the peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near for through him. He's talking about Jesus. We both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you're no longer, he's just giving us gospel here. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And what is this household of God? What are all these people together? All Christians make up the household of God. And what is it built on? The foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. What Paul is saying is Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The foundation is built on him. Nothing is built without him. He is the piece that holds the whole thing together. If you get Jesus wrong, the house crumbles. Jesus is the cornerstone and the apostles were given the authority to build on the cornerstone, to establish the church, to finish the canon of scripture, to to write all that the spirit would bring into remembrance that Jesus taught, to plant churches, to disciple men. They were building and laying the foundation as the Holy Spirit was guiding them and working through them. And what happens Now, the apostles die, the canon is closed, and the men that they have raised up, pastors and preachers and teachers and prayer warriors, they build on the foundation that was laid. We need not lay any other foundation. We have the word of God, we have the spirit of God, and now we obey the word of God by the spirit of God. And we're not adding to the foundation, we're just building on top of it. We're preaching the gospel, we're obeying scripture, and we're building on the foundation. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. So don't miss what Paul's saying. He's specifically talking about him. According to the grace of God that was specifically given to me as an apostle, I got to lay the foundation along with the other apostles. And now someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Scary verses there. Essentially what Paul is saying here is that if we don't build on the foundation of the word of God written by the spirit of God through the hands of the apostles that God specifically, that Jesus gave the keys to and apportioned to write scripture and to lay the foundation of the church, if we don't preach the same gospel they preached, if we don't follow in their example, if we preach a different gospel, then it will burn up in the end. If we get Jesus wrong, if we mislead people, and they believe in faith plus something else, and they don't have the genuine gospel, then the fire one day, the judgment, will reveal that. And those materials that we built won't last unless we are rightly building on the foundation. And now, the church essentially has been given the authority by God, not a building, not a brand, the people of God, to bind and loose. And that's a whole nother Sermon for another day, it's where we misinterpret the big three, as I like to call them in Matthew 18. Um, We got some time. Flip to Matthew 18 real quick. I just want you to see these. Um, It's hard not to. Um, Flip over there really fast. Three of the most misinterpreted verses are in Matthew chapter 18, but they have to do with what we're talking about here. Some of you know Matthew 18, where Jesus talks about... um, the process for church discipline, as it's been coined, but to restore brothers to repentance. And if you look with me, I'm sorry this won't be on the screen because we're, you know, spur of the moment making the audibles and things. Um, If you're looking on your phone or in your Bible at Matthew um, 18, start in verse 15. He says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Remember, these are believers between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you, essentially as an outcast, as a Gentile, that's the the derogatory um, meaning of the word Gentile, treat them as an unbeliever, a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Here it is. We love to just yank. This is the first of the big three. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We love to just yank that out, but the context is in church discipline. It's the the authority that God has given his church, the people of God, that when the church gathers and there is an unrepentant sinner, that they deem that he is not saved, because he didn't listen to one brother or two brothers or three brothers. And keep in mind those two things. Go get someone else and have two people, then go get some more people. Have three people. That's gonna mean something in another one of the big three. But if you go through all of these links to show someone with humility and kindness and grace, show them their sin, and they are unrepentant, then he says, cast them out. And then he says, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. The same thing he told the apostles. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It doesn't mean that you and I just get to walk around and bind random things. And I'm all about, hear me, I'm not trying to make light. I'm all about if you wanna pray to bind the enemy. But I find those prayers so interesting because how long is he bound? 
And why do we need to do it each week? Like if you're gonna bind him, why not bind him for you know, years or forever, right? Why do we need to do things like that? And I think we should pray and for God's protection, all those things. So like I said, I'm trying to be really careful as I talk about this, um, but that's not what this verse means. He's talking about the church having the authority when there are unrepentant believers or when there's genuine believers to, to bring them in, to open the door, to loosen it up and let believers in, but then when there's unrepentant, unconfessing so-called believers to send them out. This is what he's talking about here. And then he says this, after I lose my spot, um, he says, uh, am I still in Matthew 18? Here we go. Um, I started in, uh, I am on Matthew 19. Here I go. Um, he said this, whatever you bind on earth, bound in heaven, loosed on earth, shall be loosed in heaven. And then if you look at verse 19, he says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, ask, and it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. We pluck that verse out. And we say, hey, agree with me so that this prayer will magically come to fruition. No, it's not what he's talking about. He's talking about church discipline, where if two or three of you get together in the church and there is an unrepentant believer, or if two or three of you get together and you see that someone's genuinely received the gospel, let them in. If you agree about these things, they will be done for you. And then this verse, here's the third of the big three. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That verse is about church discipline. It's not about I have to have someone else with me or God is not there in my midst. If you think about it, God's given all believers the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine if God is not in my midst when I wake up in the morning? I got, hey, I gotta go wake up my wife. Like, hey, can you be with me so that God will actually hear me? That's not how it works. It is not a promise that you're by yourself. I mean, God forbid you are single or you're widowed or divorced and you're, you, then you never get to hear from God. If it takes two or three, you wake up and go to your neighbor's house and hey, can you come with me so that God will be in our midst? That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that when the church gathers together, and they, with the authority that Christ has given the church, not a person, not a personality, but the people of God, and they affirm someone's genuine profession of faith and their repentance, and they understand the gospel, bring them in. And God says, when, when you agree, I'm with you in that agreement. And when you send somebody out, I'm with you. That's what he's referring to. It's not a verse that we need to quote to remind ourselves that God is here. God is always here. He's in us. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. You don't have to invite him in here and you don't have to have one person with you. You can hear from God alone with the word of God because the spirit of God wrote the word of God and the spirit of God is in you to interpret the word of God to you. Does that make sense? And all of that is to say that it's good that Paul went to meet with the apostles because they were given the keys. And here's the ultimate test. Paul goes to the people with the keys, to the apostles sent by Jesus Christ, and he's gonna lay before them the gospel that he's been teaching for 14 years, and it better match. He says, if it doesn't, I fear that I have labored in vain. 
Can you imagine being Paul? And you get there and they make some corrections and you realize that 14 years of preaching to people was wrong. This is the ultimate test. What does Paul say in verse two? I set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, Peter, James, and Don, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. I gave them the gospel in order to make sure that I wasn't running or had not run in vain. So here's the question. Paul clearly set before them the gospel. Now my question for you is, can you do that? And I don't say this arrogantly, I actually mean this genuinely. Can you clearly set before someone the gospel? Because all of us at one point go, yeah, like I've heard the sermons and I know that, but when it's time for you to, to set it before someone, you would be surprised how, I don't wanna say difficult, but if you've never done it before, how difficult it can be. One of my favorite things to do with students uh, this was my favorite thing as a student pastor is we'd get some students together and we would do the whole spiritual um, situation. We'd do this role play scenario where we'd, um, you're on a plane. Usually we'd do this with mission teams before we leave and I would feed them the first three lines. You pair up with someone, somebody's gonna walk out of the room, they're gonna walk back in and they're gonna say, line one, where are you going? Line two, response. Well, we're going on a mission trip to serve and share the gospel with some people. Line three, what's the gospel? Go, Right? And then we just watch and listen. So here's what I wanna do. You don't have to do this. I'm not gonna require you to do this. We're not passing around mics, but I want you. We're a family here. We don't have to just sit. I want you to, if you're with somebody, if you're by yourself, that's fine. If you're with somebody, take the next minute and lay the gospel before someone as best as you can. And like I said, you don't have to, if you're by yourself, you can just think about what you would say. But turn to someone next to you for the next minute and I want you to practice it and try it. And you'll be pleasantly surprised, some of you, at how difficult it was. And others of you, um, you'd be surprised that you were able to do it. Who knows? But take a couple minutes. We're gonna hear some just chatter around the room and uh, try to share it with someone. You don't have to think about what you wanna say. I know all of the introverts are giving me the death eyes right now. But, but give it a try. You can look at someone and say, I don't even know, you tell me. But give it a try and you'd be genuinely shocked. So take a second and then uh, we'll continue. All right, take like 20 more seconds. We're getting bare bones here, bare bones gospel. Are any of you already pleasantly surprised that it's more difficult than you thought? 
No. Okay, keep a couple of you. I think the others just aren't being honest. Take last couple seconds. All right. Was it as easy as you thought? No? Somewhat? How many of you are like still on Cain and Abel and other things that aren't really about the gospel? A couple of you? Hey, that's happened to me all the time. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm like getting into, you know, all the stories. I got to get over. Yeah, yeah. So here's what's interesting. And we'll get to the gospel in just a second. Paul says that he laid it before them in vain and then he just moves on. So we're gonna move quickly, but I promise the gospel's coming. So we're gonna give you some practical ways you can remember the gospel, share the gospel, all those kind of things. But I wanna get through our verses so that I've done my task for the morning. But he says this in verse three. He says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Paul makes it clear, we can talk ideas, but Paul says, I brought a Gentile to the Jerusalem council, to the apostles, and said, do with him what you wish. And what did they do? They said, he did not have to be circumcised, which is the very thing that the Judaizers were telling the Galatian churches that they had to do. Faith in Jesus, plus obey this Old Testament law about circumcision. Paul says, I went to the folks with the keys with my Gentile friend. He probably had no idea what was going on. He's just like, wait, wait, what? You're gonna ask him to do? And they said, no. It is faith alone, by a gift of God's grace alone, through Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Peter, eventually at the council, says we couldn't keep the law. Why would we ask them to keep a law that we couldn't obey? The very point of the law is we need a savior. We're not gonna put the law on them. We're gonna ask them to trust in the savior, just like we are, for our inability to obey the law. And he says, no, we're not gonna put that burden on them. He says this in verse four, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery. So Paul says, here's what's going on. These false brothers, they look like the real thing. They're coming to the meetings. They're sitting in the rows. They're putting money in the plate, but they're preaching a false gospel. And he says, they're spying it out. It's not an accident. This is on purpose. They are preying on the Galatian church. And what are they preying on? Their freedom in Christ. As soon as you and I have to do good works to be saved, you are no longer free and you will never feel free. If your ability to be a good person is what saves you, you will never feel free. You can't. I will never do enough good works to be worthy of God's love. Freedom goes out the window if it's up to my good works. And he says, they're coming in, adding works, spying out our freedom. And here's what Paul says, and this is the plea to every pastor, every elder, and every parent in the room. He says, verse five, to them, we did not yield in submission for even a moment. And this is the temptation since Jesus has left the earth, and this is the temptation today for every church and for every parent to make the gospel more palatable to the world and its values, to compromise on the truth of the gospel. This is gonna be your temptation as a parent. Hey, the gospel message is offensive. Let me make it a little less offensive. 
to change the message, to protect your children from false gospels that come in through all sorts of means, through the shows we watch, the songs we sing, for us as parents to say, hey, that's not gospel, that's not true. That song that they're singing, that line that they just said, that message that that show just gave you, that in, in your heart you're just a good person and you just gotta find your true goodness inside of you, no. The scriptures tell us goodness does not come from within, it comes from outside of us in Jesus. And when we trust in Jesus, he takes out the heart of stone. He puts in a heart of flesh. He gives us the spirit to overcome our sin nature. But Paul says all of these false gospels are showing up and he says, I did not yield for even a moment. And here's why. Here's why every parent, you need the resolve to not yield when it comes to the gospel. This is why every pastor, every elder, every church leader, does not yield for the gospel. Here's why. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is why we do not compromise on the gospel. Paul says, I was beaten, I was lashed, I was stoned, I was ridiculed, I was harassed, I was persecuted, and I did not yield. Why? So that you could hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. Every parent, why don't we yield so that our kids can hear the saving message of Jesus Christ? How did we get the gospel? It was the apostles and the church fathers and the reformers, you name it. All 11 of the apostles, except for John, were murdered for not yielding to this message. Polycarp and the other church fathers were killed because they wouldn't yield and they wouldn't recant this message. The reformers, many of them were killed. Why? Because they would not change and compromise the truth of the gospel. We actually have the gospel because of the blood of the saints that have gone before us. They have given their lives in not yielding to compromising the gospel. And I'm not playing the Holy Spirit and chances are the Lord is not gonna ask many of us unless he calls you to a, a pretty hostile place to give up your life. But before we worry about compromising for the gospel to get to some of the remote tribes of Africa and Asia, we need to worry about not compromising the gospel to get it to the back seat of our van for our children in the, in the room, the children in this room, the children across the hall. Paul says, I didn't yield, I didn't compromise, I didn't add anything to the gospel. I guarded it, I protected it, I preached it, I proclaimed it. Why? So that you could be saved in Jesus Christ. This is why. And this is where we find ourselves today. And then he says this, there were some who seemed influential, we'll move through these quickly. Um, those who seemed influential, he's talking about the apostles and their authority. Um, he says, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Um, God doesn't necessarily give things based on our earthly reputation and our potential and all those kind of things. He says, those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. Now that seems kind of harsh. He's not saying that they added no fun or no joy or no happiness. He's saying they added nothing to my message. He's saying they didn't add anything to my apostolic authority. They didn't come and knight me and make me, you know, their status of apostle. I met with them. I shared the gospel with them. They didn't correct it. They didn't refute it. They didn't change it. And they didn't summon me to more authority. They confirmed what I was preaching. 14 years and the messages matched. He says, on the contrary, instead of correcting me, 
when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that just means the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel of the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And he says, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, these influential people of reputation, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. He says, when I finally met them, they didn't rebuke me, they didn't correct me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me. It's one of those moments where St. Augustine used to say, um, in the essentials, we have unity. In the non-essentials, you know, like the millennium and the rapture and all those things that aren't essential to the gospel, we have liberty, but in all things, we have charity. He said, when they saw that in the essentials, in, in the gospel message, we were unified, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. Um, the hiding place, Corey Ten Boom. There's a scene in the movie, I'm not sure if it's in the book, but in the movie, um, she and her sister Betsy are in a concentration camp and they're there because they were hiding Jews to save their lives and they get caught um, and they're in the concentration camp and she's like, this is the worst pain I've ever experienced, the, the most demoralizing and hopeless thing I've ever experienced. And at one point in the movie, she looks over and sees a um, worker in the concentration camp, this lady um, who's kind of hiding a cross necklace um, under her shirt and she's you know, bending over and it comes out and she makes eyes with Corey Ten Booms and grabs a cross and she says, I love him too. And she said, it was that moment that gave me hope, that rejuvenated, that, that there are people here who love Jesus. It's like when we go on mission trips and we meet these people in other countries, um, we go to Guatemala all the time and, and there's just this fellowship when we get with people who are leveraging their lives for the gospel and the same Jesus that loves us is the same Jesus that loved them and we get there and they say, hey, I love him too. There's just a fellowship there. And Paul says, we got there, I told them the message and there was fellowship. And then he says this, the only thing they asked us to remember was the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. And here's, um, Paul's not joking when he says, I was eager to do this. What they're specifically referring to there is the poor in Jerusalem. Is Jerusalem was where the heat of the persecution was. It was where Stephen was stoned. It was where um, all of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Judaizers were hanging out. They were persecuting the church in Jerusalem. And, and the apostles said, your message is clear. Your message is right. Go and preach it to the Gentiles, but remember the poor here in Jerusalem. And for the rest of Paul's ministry, you can hardly read one of his letters where he talks about raising money for the saints in Jerusalem. He thanks the Philippian church twice for giving money. He asked the church at Corinth to give money. And then when he's writing the letter to the Romans, he says, hey, I'm taking money to Jerusalem. Paul says, hey, I'm headed to Jerusalem, dropping off money. Then I'm coming to Rome to see you because I love you. And then I'm headed to Spain where Christ is not yet known. And Paul would drop off the money. He would make it to Rome and he would never make it out of Rome. He would be arrested and beheaded in Rome. But Paul, for the rest of his life, remembered to raise money for the saints. So parents, I probably just need to send you an email with um, some gospel reminders. But if you wanna know the gospel really clearly for the sake of your children, um, I pray that it's the gospel we sing, over, it's the gospel you sing over your kids, it's the gospel you pray over your kids. I pray that you take mealtime prayers and throw some gospel in there, right? It's great to thank God for safety and your day and food and then thank God for Jesus dying for your sins. It's a great way for your children to hear the gospel. 
But here's the, the easiest way to remember it. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. This is the gospel. It always starts with God. He's holy, he's righteous, he's just, he is perfect in everything that he does. He is all good and loving. And when you start talking about God, the most natural transition is to talk about us, right? God is holy, God is righteous, God is beautiful. We are not, right? We're sinful, we mess up, we're selfish, we lie, we do all of these things, we fall short of the glory of God. So what did God do? Christ. He sent Christ to be our substitute, to achieve all of the righteousness and the goodness that we could never achieve and to die for all of the sin that we had incurred. Lastly, God, man, Christ's response. What's our response? Is believe in Jesus Christ. Everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. Trust in Jesus Christ. Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that he's Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God, man, Christ response. There's a couple other ones out there. There's the Romans Road. There's, I'm happy to send them to you in an email, but I've already used my time. So, church, I hope you see the links that Paul has gone so that the Galatian church can hear and know that they have the true gospel. And greater than Paul, greater than the apostles, there is someone greater who has paid the ultimate price so that you and I can have the gospel. And it's Jesus Christ himself. He gave himself up for us so that you and I could be saved and hear this good news. So let's guard it, let's protect it, let's preach it, let's share it with our children, let's pray it over our children and this community, our neighbors, our family members. Chris's benediction as we close, we'll talk about this gospel that we've been, scripture says, entrusted with. God reconciles us to himself, but then he gives us a ministry of reconciliation that we get to be used by God after he saves us to be the means by which others hear this saving message and they are saved. So, um, to my detriment, um, I'm gonna get Chris to read our benediction band. I'm so sorry. Um, everyone download All Sufficient Merit on your way home because it's phenomenal. And um, I genuinely apologize. And um, Chris, uh, read our benediction and then we'll, uh, we'll dismiss you. No apologies. No apologies necessary. We're good. Um, Timothy was Paul's disciple. Uh, Paul is looking at death. He's dying soon. Uh, he's suffering for the gospel, and he charges Timothy to do the exact same thing. And this is how he tells him to do it. This is from 2 Timothy, uh, starting down around verse 12. Uh, Paul, he says, but I'm not ashamed. I know in whom I've believed. I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And so how will Timothy do this uh, the same way? He says, follow the pattern of the sound words, the gospel that you've heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And uh, how will he do that? Uh, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Uh, you guys go in peace.